We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Please open your Bible to Acts chapter 27 this morning. Acts chapter 27. The account that we'll read here is every sailor's nightmare. Thurman, you might take some uh, note with this passage. If you've ever been on the high seas in a storm, your uh, mind's eye can imagine this better than maybe some of us. But uh, Luke does pretty well of making the story vivid for us. Acts chapter 27. And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some, of, and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of Adramatum, we, sent, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonia of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we, we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus, uh, the, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete of uh, Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. Now when much, had, much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest in winter there. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a, a tempestuous head wind arose, called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive or be driven. In running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, 
we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on Sirtis sands, they, stuck, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have sailed from Crete, and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now on the fourteenth night, now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all we were 266 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and let them into the sea, meanwhile losing the rudder ropes. And they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept, from, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should, over, should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, 
some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land, just as the Lord promised. Amen. And in the pre-planning, pre-planning process this year, only 30 kids registered. And initially I thought, oh, man, that's kind of a bummer, only 30 kids. And then I got to thinking, well, wait a minute. The vast majority of their kids need to hear the gospel. What am I complaining about? Amen. And it's easy to get involved in the logistics of everything. Because a lot of planning went into this this year. And we, what we tried to do is... Again, Pastor said, two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And we really intertwined that theme throughout everything we did with VBS. I don't know if you saw that big, ugly knight come through that uh, drawbridge. I don't know who that was, but um, he could drop some pounds as far as I'm concerned. But even, even in that, even in that, we really brought forth the kingdoms, um, the kingdom of Satan that these kids are going to be up against. And not only in that, in the puppet, in the uh, science projects, in the games, in the lessons, in everything we did, we intertwined this thing of two kingdoms and putting on the armor of God. And I was really, really encouraged to see. We, we also put a big emphasis on uh, memorizing scripture this year. And I was really pleased to see. Kids really worked at it. I mean, they really did. And, uh, and we made that a, a big push this year to... to put on the sword of the spirit which is God's word and we really emphasize that to them because uh, you won't make it without that and we really really tried to drive that home Um, the kids that were here were such a joy they really were and I want to thank all the workers that were involved because it was it was a big project and and the whole push was to God's glory that's all it was We, we made mistakes throughout it but we just laughed you know, but because to plant those seeds in these kids, and just to see their eyes, the attention that they had during the lessons, and and they were they were really listening. They they really, we really planted some good seeds, and uh, now we need the spirit to take those seeds and and bring some fruit. Is there someone out there? You go, Bethany. He took my thing, but I I just wanted well two things. One, our junior helpers whatever you would call that, Jackson and Macy, and that row of Reeves boys, minus the one. Um, And Micah, I was going to say Jonah, and I knew that wasn't right. Anyway, I don't know if I missed anybody. Sophia, um, Daniel, John, Postif. They... they, I can say them. You want me to start with Genesis? No. Anyway, the memorization was my thing. And Pastor sent a note out after day one saying, mm, you know, last year at this time, 62% of the kids had said at least one verse. And yesterday it was 30 or 40. So I was like, ooh, that's not so good. And I know I took that. I know Betty took it, and praise the Lord, she was here every day. We 
approach the kids. And it's, I've never done that before, is to just say, let's learn a verse, pick a short one, you know, James 1.22. And you can say it five times, and you know, the points are a fun thing, but the most important thing is hiding God's word in their heart. And so I, it was a blessing for me the rest of the week to just grab, do you got any verses to say? No, well let's just sit down and take a look at the sheet and get one worked out. And then you said, yeah, you said it. Now come say it to Miss Betty. Come over here and say it to you know whoever was near and to get it said. And it just, that, that I pray is gonna go a long way the rest of their lives. So that was just a blessing for everybody that was there, the, the teachers and the helpers and the whole thing was just amazing. So. Amen. Naomi. I just wanted to say um, it, it was a really blessed week, and one of the things I love about our VBS um, week year after year is just all being with all the volunteers and seeing everybody using their gifts so wonderfully. It's just such an encouragement. It's really refreshing. The, um, I absolutely agree with the, the lessons were so reinforced. You know, the kids would go to game time and art, or I mean crafts and science, and each of those rotations, just wonderful to see like the truths being reinforced and the kids having a great time. And I also just another thing that was really encouraging to me was the our teen helpers again, and um, just how willing they were to um, not just um, be with the kids. And I had really awesome helpers with my kids that were attentive and really cared about the kids. That was great to see. So we're developing our young people, our our, our teens as well. But also, you know, they were willing to pop up and do um, you know our little creature feature uh, uh, animal of the day or to do the team points, things like that was just such, it's such a blessing to see that. And again, just keep praying for the kids that were here and their families. It was an amazing opportunity. It wasn't a huge number of kids, but it was a really great opportunity uh, with uh, some of the families that didn't come from backgrounds that would have heard necessarily heard the gospel, and they really did listen. So I just praise the Lord for um, all of that. And so I'll just share a little bit to close. Um, we had a wonderful week, and I also want to say thanks to everybody who helped. Uh, we just had a great time. Uh, most of us were able to stay afterwards on Friday for a lunch and share together, uh, the workers, and uh, it, was, it was really nice. Um, one of the families, uh, the mother said to me on the way out on Friday, um, evidently they've gone to several vacation Bible schools this summer, and she said this was the best one. The kids said this was the best one, and I think she thought that as well. And her, her, her one boy was there overhearing our conversation, and he said, well, I didn't actually say that. <laughs> like, like, I think what he meant was he didn't say it in that exact way because then the next words out of his mouth was, but it's probably true. <laughs> so that was kind of funny, but... Uh, and we had uh, several parents who uh, expressed appreciation for the fact that it was a, B a Bible school with meat to it. It wasn't just fluff and uh, really had Bible and it wasn't just activities. 
um, always good for the kids. And we did, uh, we did add a little more of an emphasis like on the verse memory this year that it wasn't just you know catch as catch can, but we're going to intentionally work with the kids. And so we made sure that by the end of the week, 100% of the children in Vacation Bible School had said one or more verses uh, from memory that week. Now, some of the younger ones, they needed a little extra coaching, obviously, but uh, we'll take it. And uh, certainly better than, you know, like in the years past, maybe at the end of the week, we had two-thirds of kids who memorized any verses and some only very few. So uh, that, was, uh, that was very good. Um, my part was to, uh, as usual, run around and cover anything that wasn't covered and uh, do the Bible minute at the end uh, of the day and pray at the, at the closing. Um, but I really, mo- everything else was done by everybody else. I mean, two, nearly two and a half hours of ministry with the kids from registration to uh, dismissal. And uh, we, just, we just had a wonderful time. Um, quality not necessarily quantity. In fact, when you have too much quantity, it makes it hard to have quality. You just don't get enough, you know, a good enough teacher to student ratio to be able to individually work with kids. And so uh, it's a delight uh, when kids, you know, want to say a verse to you and uh, get that recorded uh, or check on their score. You know, they, they want to look in the computer, some of them, and see, am I, am I, do I have the most points? And well, you've got to memorize more verses. I had a funny experience with the one fellow who, uh, youngster, who I said, uh, well, you, you missed the opportunity to get points because you didn't bring your worksheets back. And his eyes got all big. And he, he knew exactly what he had to do to get more points. And he had to because he was against stiff competition uh, with one of the other young ladies uh, in the church who, uh, who did well. So uh, two, two students memorized all the verses on both sides of the page of the sheet. And, uh, and many others did a lot of them too. So that was all very good. Yes? Last year at this time, Jim and I said, no more that's it. And a couple days later, I said, no, it's a big thing next year. So right now, Jim and I said, no more that's it. So my point yes. is, somebody wants to maybe step up. We'll see. Okay. Yes, so Steve is appealing for more assistance in the big part of, uh, of setting up for VBS. You see this set up behind us here. Uh, Steve has built those for a number of years, and uh, we could use additional assistance with that. We have to always be training and keeping, uh, keeping up with the, uh, with the passing of time. So, uh, passing of time, not passing of volunteers. <laughs> You're not allowed to pass yet. <laughs> so anyway, very good. Well, um, Dan, I think we have one more hymn before the message. So let me uh, have you uh, come up and do that, and then we'll get to the, the word. Our message this morning is in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1, please, if you'd turn there. Luke chapter 1, in a portion of scripture that might be more often used or preached or read around Christmas time, but we're going to go through it together here this morning. 
Luke has told us he's going to set in order a narrative of the events that occurred around the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is going to uh, begin at a very good place in the days leading up to the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. These two cousins were born six months apart in very unique circumstances. And we begin with the birth announcement of John the Baptist to his parents, particularly to his father, in verse number 5. Let me read. It says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, so just to kind of orient ourselves to the situation here. So we have King Herod, uh, the king of Judea. This is around you know, 0, minus 1, minus 3, 4, 5 B.C., somewhere in there. Uh, and we have this priest named Zacharias, and he is, of course, a Levite, a priest. He is of the division of Abijah. What does that mean? Well, if you go back to Second uh, Chronicles, I think it is, or either First Chronicles, I have it in the notes here, uh, and you can look that up. But there are 24 divisions of the priesthood. These were set up back in the day in order to organize who comes to the temple to offer service at the temple. And so 24 divisions, they would come for one week, and then later in the year they'd come for another week, approximately. And so they would have to make that trek twice a year. Abijah's division is named in the Chronicles, and it is the eighth of the 24 divisions. So as it happens... Uh, that uh, this fellow, Zacharias, was in that particular division, and it was their turn to come and to minister at the temple. And it says in verse 6, And they were both righteous, husband and wife, before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years." So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, that is number eight in the Abijah division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And so what happened was they would select of the group of, the, of that eighth division, they would select who's going to get to offer incense today. And who's going to offer incense each of the days? And you have to offer it in the morning and in the evening, and uh, the evening being late afternoon in reality. Uh, but that's how they divided up the work. And so some, uh, somehow the lot fell to this man to do the uh, incense at this particular time. And that was a great honor, if you can imagine yourself. Uh, some have been in more ritualistic kind of or high, high church where you have, uh, you know, the kind of the vestments and you have the ritual and, you know, the coming forward and holding these things and the incense and all this sort of stuff. And that, of course, is somewhat modeled on the Old Testament, although it's anachronistic. It doesn't fit today in this age. But you can imagine as a young person or as a, as a, in this case, an older fellow, the honor that it would be to actually go into the temple to do this. Imagine that. Into the temple of God to offer incense. Not everybody gets to do it in Israel. And not even everybody in your division, because if it's a large division, then only some get to actually be selected to do that work. So 
quite an honor for him to do that. It was a very important time in his life. And uh, you can imagine, yeah, trembling because you're going before God. And also, I've never done this before. I've got to make sure I get this right. Yeah. So according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Of course, incense representing what? Any familiarity with that? Prayers of God, of God's people going up to the Lord. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. No doubt. <laughs> but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And by the way, in Malachi, it says also to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers. And to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. But the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed, just that, that short week, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself Five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. It's interesting to observe that both Zacharias and Elizabeth were from the line of Aaron. They had no children, however, and they were old. But the text says something more important than all of that. The text tells us that they were righteous before God. Righteous before God. God. Consequently, they had very uh, upstanding behavior at, after it says that they were righteous before God. They were walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. That order is important in Christian theology. You first become righteous before God, not by doing the, the law and the commandments, but you become righteous, then you do what God is pleased for you to do. I will explain that in just a little bit more detail in a moment. The phrase righteous before God means more than just their behavior was good. It means that they were saved people. They were believers. 
This is one of the great religious conundrums in the world. Job asked the question using these same words, how can a man be righteous before God? Here's an example of two people who were answers to his question. Job, at least Zacharias and Elizabeth, are righteous before God. Bildad asked the same question in Job 25, verse 4. The, the first one was in Job 9.2. Job 9.2. There's a little typo in the notes there. Zacharias and Elizabeth shared the faith of their forefather Abraham, who believed in God. And what does the text say? And God imputed it to him for righteousness. Abraham was righteous before God as well, not because of himself, but because of God's righteousness imputed to him. Okay. Notice, please, that Zacharias and Elizabeth were not merely righteous before people or in the sight of human beings. They were both righteous before God. In God's sight, he looked at them according to his standard, based as it is on repentant faith, they were in good standing before God. That's what that means. It doesn't just mean that they were goody two-shoes. They were right with God by faith in him. And now, today, we're right with God by faith in him through Jesus because we see Jesus, we see God the Father in him. If you've seen me, he said to Philip, what have you seen? The Father. You believe in me, you believe in him. You believe in him, you believe in the one who was sent. You believe in me, you believe in the one who sent me he says. So it's one and the same connection. The entire teaching of the New Testament revolves around this idea that no one is righteous. Romans 3.10. But that people can be constituted, imputed, made to be righteous in God's sight by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the burden of the New Testament teaching which many, many people miss. They see the moral teachings, oh, those are nice. They see, they connect them with some liturgical practice, you know, they think that's nice and religious and that's all good. They miss the boat. If none is righteous, how do you get righteous before God? Well, in Romans 3.26, it says that in Christ, God demonstrated his righteousness, that he, God, might be just and at the same time, the justifier, the one who makes righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. That's Romans chapter 3. And the, really, the, the whole early part of the book of Romans is all about how does somebody get righteous before God. These folks were experiencing that. They didn't know about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection because he hadn't come yet. But they knew enough. They knew the revelation that they had been given. It says that, there's a priest here named Zacharias. There were priests then because the temple was still in operation. Even though Rome was occupying power over Israel, there, were, uh, there was an operational temple. They offered sacrifices daily. They offered incense daily, twice daily. And worshipers prayed outside of the temple throughout the day. Today, today, in 2023, there are no priests. Not in God's economy. Well, except for two, two ends of the spectrum. Peter tells us 
Everybody's a priest. Okay, so we don't need special priests to get us access to God. And on the other hand, Hebrew says we have one priest, the highest of the high priests, in the order of Melchizedek. Not in the order of Aaron like he was, uh, Zacharias, but in the order of Melchizedek. So we have the high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. But we don't have men who fill this role of priest today. Any who do just do so in accordance with the traditions of man, not with the word of God. As I said, that whole idea of a priesthood is anachronistic. We don't have a priesthood to give us access to God because Jesus was the last of those priests. He was the one who made the final sacrifice. There is no temple in operation in Jerusalem. There's no incense offered to represent the prayers of the saints. There is no central altar because Jesus said there comes a time when it's not just on this mountain or that mountain that you worship, but God seeks true worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth anywhere on the planet. So we don't have these kind of priests today, but they did then. And it says, despite all of this, that they were righteous before God, that they walked blameless, that he was a priest, they had no child. Let me just say this. The lack of children was not a sign of a curse from God. Okay? The text of Scripture warrants us to be absolutely certain that Zacharias and Elizabeth were not suffering affliction the affliction of childlessness for some unrighteousness in them. Just like Job was not suffering in his book because of some unrighteousness found in him, as his friends wrongly concluded. They thought he had sin in his life hidden there somewhere, and that's why God was punishing him. Or like in John chapter 9, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? The answer from Jesus, neither. It was to glorify God. Why this case for them right now, because God had a special plan for these two at the perfect time, despite their age, but because of their godliness, to raise a young man who would be the greatest man who would ever live. It took time for God to prepare them for that work, and it took time because God sent his son at the fullness of time and he had to have John the Baptist just a little bit before Jesus to be his forerunner. So he had to have the timing just correct. They were not suffering affliction because of some unrighteousness in them. They were both righteous before God and blameless in their law-keeping conduct. In terms of a broader application, just because you are not blessed in some particular way does not necessarily mean that your conduct is wrong before the Lord. It also doesn't mean that you're standing before the Lord is wrong. Notice they had good conduct because they had a good standing before the Lord. They were righteous before God. Now, your conduct and standing certainly could be wrong before God. That's determined based on whether you have faith in Christ or not. It's not determined. You don't determine how right you are before God by looking at your life and saying, boy, I have problems, therefore I must not be right with God. You understand what I'm saying? You look at your life and you say, am I trusting in Christ? Amen. Okay, if the answer is yes, then I'm good. Now, I may still suffer afflictions and persecutions and difficulties and not have all my prayers answered the way that I want to, but those things are not a proof that I'm living in some kind of wicked unrighteousness or that I'm not believing in God. 
Your standing is right before God if you trust in Christ. And if you do not trust in him, then your standing is wrong with God. But you don't look at yourself and say, look, we can't have children, therefore God hates us. Totally wrong way of thinking, okay? Now, given this situation that they're facing, what do you suppose this couple was praying for more than anything else over the years? They wanted a child. Now, they probably resigned themselves, you know, after being married for 30, 40 years or however long, they probably resigned themselves, well, (laughs) I guess it's just not happening. We're not going to be having kids, even one kid. We can say, I think, with certainty that they were praying for a child. They probably were praying like Isaac did for his wife in Genesis chapter 25. Do you know how long he prayed for his wife to have a child? Almost 20 years. He was married at 40. He had their their children at 60. So give them some space, okay? They probably didn't pray real hard about it in the first year because they have to give it a a shot, you know? (laughs) give it a try, but after a while, he's like, oh, this isn't working. They start praying, and 20 years his wife was waiting to have a child. Why? We don't understand. We don't know. But it came time for Zechariah's twice annual trek to Jerusalem. In the Abijah division, he was chosen to offer incense, but it was at this time that the casting of the lot was into the lap but the disposal of it was in the hand of God, and the decision he made was to set Zacharias there because Gabriel was going there at that particular time. And this is a remarkable narrative because, you know, we just kind of read over it and we're familiar with the biblical text, and we're in a mindset that allows us to understand supernatural things. You know, God created the universe from nothing, ex nihilo, in did everything in six days and then rested. What's the big deal about crossing the Red Sea on dry ground or sending an angel or becoming incarnate in Christ and dying and raising people from the dead? There's no big deal with those things. That's just God. That's a manifestation of who God is and the supernatural things that, that happen outside of the normal realm of, of natural activity. So we read over and think of, but, you know, when's the last time that Gabriel appeared on the scene in the Bible? You remember? Well, in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, he appeared to give some information to Daniel. He was a messenger from God. Mighty one of God, Gabriel means. But he was a messenger. Standing before God, he says here in this text. Can you imagine that? Standing before God. Waiting with his eyes fixed for the command to go. Daniel 500 years before we read this, 500 years earlier, Gabriel's there waiting and God sends him, fly swiftly and go answer Daniel's prayer. Before Daniel's even done praying, he goes to send the answer to Daniel's prayer. Gabriel last appeared 500 years earlier in the biblical narrative. And only four times is he mentioned in the scriptures. There's twice in in, uh, Daniel and then here we uh, mention in Luke as well these two times. Angels live forever. You know that, right? That's kind of obvious, but I never really put it that way. Angels do live forever. Some of them departed from God's righteousness or holiness, and they're going to live forever chained in darkness, and some of them now chained in darkness, and then others 
all of them will be in the lake of fire in the end. But, uh, yeah, that's what happened with angels. Angels live forever. So he comes on the scene, and uh, he gives the, um, the message to Zacharias. Zacharias obviously has some, a couple of responsibilities to do in this. Uh, he's going to go home. He's going to be with his wife, and he's going to name the boy John. Notice he was not Elijah. In fact, later on, the, the priest sent to John, and they said, are you that prophet? Nope. I'm not. Are you Elijah? Nope, I'm not Elijah. He's not Elijah. He's like Elijah, very much like Elijah. Has the same exact spirit that Elijah had, but he's not exactly the same. So, uh, you know, Gabriel shows up. Uh, he says, do not be afraid. That's almost the first words out of the mouth of an angel every time they come and see the people that they're coming to see. Don't be afraid because people are afraid. And uh, he announces this birth. He says to them, look, you're going to have joy. <laughs> I mean, think of the boundless joy that mom and dad would have at having a baby after all those years of praying. He says, your prayer is heard. Not only God heard your prayer, he told me, Gabriel, your prayer. And he told me, here's the answer to your prayer. And I'm here a messenger to tell you the answer to that prayer. Their earlier sorrow was going to be replaced by joy, not only for them, but gladness and, 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 and many other people as well. Uh, in verse, verse number 14, many will rejoice at his birth. How many do you think they ask in their synagogue to pray for them to be able to have a child? Everybody in the synagogue, everybody in the hill country of Judea, perhaps. Are you too, by the way, would you ask prayer for that if you were a young couple and wanted to have another child? Would you be too embarrassed to ask people to pray? you'd be able to conceive another child? Some of us would be, but I encourage you, bring those hard prayer requests to God's people and have them intercede for you. More prayer, more joy when the answer comes. And then it says, John will be a great man. Notice this, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. The Lord. There it is again. Before God, these people were righteous. Before God, their son was going to be great. And in fact, so great was he, and so true is what Gabriel said, that in Luke's gospel chapter, I can't remember which chapter, Matthew, I remember Matthew's chapter, 11, verse 11. Jesus said, there's no, not a greater man that's ever lived, not a greater prophet that's ever lived, but John the Baptist. Despite that, Jesus said, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Think of the greatness of what it will be like to be a, a citizen in that kingdom. If the least of the people in that kingdom are better than John the Baptist was, whew, I'll take it. We need a lot of people today as good as John the Baptist or almost so. The angel also says, look, he's going to be a Nazarite from the womb. Uh, he's uh, just like Samson was supposed to be, remember? Samson, not cut his hair, not have, you know, eat, eat out of dead animals' bodies and stuff like that, not dirty himself or make himself unclean. It says he will not uh, partake of alcohol, neither wine nor strong drink, to avoid dulling his senses for sure, but most importantly to stay pure before God. Uh, I, I, I do take that as a, uh, a relevant verse in the whole case about alcohol. When people ask, 
should Christians drink alcohol? Uh, I've talked about that before. Um, if you want to be certain that you're great in the sight of the Lord, stay away from the alcohol. Yeah, absolutely don't need it. Way, way better ways to spend your time, money, and brain cells than that. Also, the Spirit of God would fill John from before birth throughout his life. You notice that in verse number um, 15. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He also will have that same spirit and power of Elijah. Uh, his pattern of life would be spirit-filled. He's not going to be immune from sin or, as we see later on in Matthew 11, depression. Remember, are you the coming one or do we look for another? He had that spiritual depression. Most people would probably get that if they were in prison and going to die. John's ministry, the Bible says, was to be to call people to turn back to God. And as you know, he did that in Matthew chapter 3. The Bible says he came out into the wilderness and he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He turned the hearts of the fathers to the children, reconciled children and fathers together. He uh, called disobedient sinners to the wisdom of the just, and he made people ready for the Lord to come. Our ministry is not dissimilar today. You people all have been made ready for the Lord to come. By that, I mean not that you're all saved. Hopefully, you all are, most of you are, or you will be if you're not yet. But you have heard that the Lord is coming a second time. John was preaching, hey, he's coming the first time. Get ready because while he's going to offer his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But we offer a similar message only talking about the fact that the Lord is coming again a second time. Be ready. He preached that often. Jesus himself did, Matthew 25. The parable of the, uh, the, the ten virgins or... Uh, you know, I'm going to go away and give, give the talents and then come back at an unannounced time and see how you've done with those resources that I've given to you. You have to be ready because the Lord is coming back. We can say, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is coming. We don't know that it's immediate, but it is coming. And you need to be ready for that. So you have to be ready, just like John's was. And what's some of the consequences of John calling people to repent? Look, if people repent, then in our day and age, and we call for this, parents to stop being jerks to their kids and kids to stop being jerks to their parents and husbands and wives not divorcing one another. If your heart is right with God, children, parents, husband, wife, guess what's going to happen to the statistics on those vices? They're going to go down. It can't help but go down when you have people who are saying, look, I'm a selfish person. I need God in my life. I need to turn away from my sin and turn to Jesus Christ and follow what he says. And he will change things. Hearts will be turned toward one another instead of away from one another. Hatred will be turned to care and love instead of what it is today, hatred magnified and people after each other and just hatred all over the place. Zacharias responds to all this with doubt. He's going to have a baby boy, but he didn't believe it. 
Now, later on, we'll read, Mary didn't believe either, in a sense. How can this be, since I don't know it well, obviously? God gave her a little bit more space than he gave to Zacharias. Here's why. First of all, her situation was totally unique. Never happened before, never happened again in world history. His situation was a bit different. How was it different? Well, he was going to have a child the old-fashioned way, albeit with a little bit of a surprise element to the timing. Now, I don't, I, I, I don't want to come down too hard on Zacharias because, as I say later in my notes, I feel like I would respond similarly to him with incredulity. So I'm not giving a harsh criticism here. But he was a priest. He was a man who believed God. He was older and should know better. He had a wife. He had the Old Testament revelation. He knew that Abraham and Sarah didn't have a child until they were older. They waited for years and years. Sarah was barren, Genesis chapter 11. He knew about Isaac and Rebekah waiting 20 years to have their children. He knew about Manoah's wife who was barren and how an angel had appeared to her and promised a son to be born who was named Samson. He knew about Hannah's inability to bear a child, yet God gave her Samuel in answer to her prayers. Consequently, the angel struck Zacharias with the inability to speak for a few months, serving thus as a sign that the angel had given a true message to him. Now, we often respond quickly with what is on our mind, and what is on our mind is often affected immediately by what's in our flesh. Listen, God gave the old priest some time of quiet after his expression of unbelief in order to think about what he had said and to formulate what would become one of the most famous proclamations in in the Bible, which is called the Benedictus, later on, which we often read at the time of Christmas. Zacharias had to be silent after he expressed his unbelief. May I say, we ought to be silent for a little while before we express unbelief. Button it. Don't let the first thing that comes out of your mouth be some expression of unbelief. Just pause and think. How would God have me to respond in faith to this situation, this trial, this tragedy, this argument, this discussion, or whatever it is. Stop and think. Be silent before, and hopefully you won't have to be silent after the unbelief. We close, as the text closes, with the narrative of Elizabeth becoming pregnant. At the end of the week of service in Jerusalem, Zacharias returned home. God enabled Elizabeth to have a child in a natural way with her husband, And she found out that she was pregnant weeks later, evidently. She offered thanks to God. He had taken away her stigma, her her reproach among people. Verse 25 says, It was a stigma, although I would encourage us that it shouldn't be a stigma. shouldn't be a stigma. It should be a matter of prayer. It's only a stigma, you know, if you have a false theology. If your theology says you're childless because of some sin in your life, we already went over that. That's not the case here. They were childless not because they were sinners, but they were childless because they were righteous and God was going to use them to bring up the greatest man who ever lived. I'm sure there could have been some embarrassment too in her heart. I mean, so old. 
and having a baby. It's a little odd, isn't it? She kept herself away from people for five months in response to God's work. No doubt, this was a time of great emotion, perhaps physical difficulty, but also great gratitude toward the Lord. Little did she know that her son, 30 years later, would be terribly mistreated by the authorities, put in jail by Herod, and have his head cut off by that same king because John lived like his parents, righteous before God. John and his parents are fine examples for us. By God's grace, we too can be righteous before God by faith. We can be upright in our conduct. We can experience the joy of answered prayer. We can lead our children to be good in God's sight, although we know they might not embrace everything that we have taught them. We can avoid alcohol and other impure things. We can be filled with God's spirit. We can be an agent to point people to God like John did, repent, point people towards one another as well. We can be like them and that we can believe God's word and we can be thankful when he answers prayer and gives his good gifts to us. In the bigger picture, God was setting up for one far greater than John to come and to provide redemption for his people. John, remember, is a pointer to Jesus, always. A man great in his own right, yes, but comparatively so unworthy as to be able to loosen the sandals off of the feet of the Messiah. Think of how great the Messiah is in that context. May God be blessed with the exposition of his word and our understanding of it today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we call to you to ask that you would help us to understand your word, that we would be like Zacharias and Elizabeth, righteous before God by faith, that we would be upright in our conduct, that we would raise our children to be that way, that we would be patient when prayers aren't answered timely according to our timeliness, but they're answered according to your timeliness in due time at the appropriate point. Lord, help us to to be godly like that and to be thankful when the answer comes. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.